I can today announce that the UK government has decided to become the world leader in low-cost clean power generation, cheaper than coal, cheaper than gas. And we believe that in 10 years' time, offshore wind will be powering every home in the country with our target rising from 30 gigawatts to 40 gigawatts. We'll not only build fixed arrays in the sea, we will build windmills that float on the sea, enough to deliver one gigawatt of energy by 2030. That's 15 times as much as the rest of the world put together. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and this week we've partnered with Fugrow to investigate why the UK's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is so optimistic about windmills that float on the sea. We discover that a lot of the technology required to deliver them already exists in the offshore world, from decades of work in oil and gas or the fast-growing wind energy industry, and technology transfer is already underway. We find out how the first floating wind projects have performed, and we discover that countries all over the world are turning to this new kind of offshore wind power generation. USA, Norway, Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Italy, France, the United Kingdom, Spain, South Korea, Japan and China. That's quite a compelling scale of market. This is Alistair Dutton from the Global Wind Energy Council. I'm chair of GWEX Global Offshore Wind Task Force and lead consultant to the World Bank's Offshore Wind Programme. At the last count, GWEC identified 72 floating offshore wind projects in development in 12 countries, with sizes that are getting increasingly larger, from arrays of just a handful of turbines up to hundreds of megawatts of generating capacity. And then we have in development now some well over a gigawatt, and that's when we'll get to the sweet spot. The sweet spot. The point at which floating wind becomes so large that economies of scale really kick in and prices plummet. This has already happened for fixed offshore wind, which, as Boris correctly pointed out in his conference speech in early October, is now cheaper than other forms of electricity generation, and we explored how that happened in episode 44, Offshore Wind Becoming a World Leader. Confidence then is high that floating technology can emulate the success of fixed turbines, and perhaps one day go even further. But it wasn't always the case. Two years ago, uh, when we discussed this at the Global Offshore Wind Task Force as to where we should focus, developers were saying, just stick to fixed foundations. And then something changed. And then I raised it again a year ago, and there was a completely different response. All the developers that have pipelines forward of 10 to 15 years are having to include it as a possibility. And therefore, my view is it's not a matter of if, but when, this technology will come through at scale and at much lower cost. So that's the game in town at the moment. So what happened to change the game in just a couple of years? To discover the answer, we needed to find someone who'd been at the forefront of development. And to do that, we needed to head south, to a place where floating offshore wind is already providing power to the grid. We needed to go to Portugal. Cost reduction is a function of scale, not a function of time. This is Kian Conroy, Senior Business Development Manager at Principal Power. 
His company makes a semi-submersible floating wind turbine foundation called Windfloat, which is one of the first in the world to prove that floating offshore wind is commercially and technically viable. Their wind float system has been used on one of two floating offshore wind projects that have proved the technology can move from demonstration to commercial scale, so from a single turbine to multiple units. It's about scale and it's about getting bigger. And we have a project in Korea which is 500 megawatts. We're working at 1,000 megawatts elsewhere in the world. 1,000 megawatts is one gigawatt. That's a floating offshore wind farm so vast that it would meet Boris Johnson's target in a single project with maybe 80 to 100 turbines. But projects of this size are a few years away and as we'd expect, the industry and wind float began with much smaller ambitions to test out the technology and grow the scale. We deployed our first unit off the coast of Portugal in 2011. So that was a two megawatt demonstration. So that was really to prove the concept of a few different elements. So one was that you could fabricate and commission a, a wind turbine substructure off-site. So we, did, we commissioned that in a, in a dry docks at the time. We commissioned the turbine, it was a two megawatt turbine. We installed, we hooked up, we ran it for a five-year cycle. And that was really just to show the whole lifetime. There was a lot to learn. That project was our first, and it was, I think, the second floating structure of, of scale in, in the world. It was. Developer Equinor had already deployed a demonstrator called Highwind off the coast of Norway, which saw successful deployment of a 2.3 megawatt turbine back in 2009. And we learned an awful lot. We survived 41 metres per second wind speeds. Optimal wind speed is around 8 metres per second, so this was massive. And of course, high winds means high waves. I think the maximum wave that came over the bow of the wind flow was 17 metres. So these were sort of really, really significant extremes that we had designed for. And that gave us a lot of comfort to then go from two megawatts to the big units. So we went from sort of two megawatt turbines to the 8.3, so over four times the capacity outputs. Four times greater capacity meant that the diameter of the turbine blades doubled from 80 metres to 164 metres, requiring a taller tower and these considerations of scale are crucial when it comes to building large arrays with 10, 12 or even 14 megawatt turbines. So our next project was the Windfloat Atlantic uh, off the west coast of Portugal. And that's sort of then when we're getting into the scale. So that's a 25 megawatt project, which we started the commission of last year and went fully operational earlier this year. And that's really showing the big scale of projects. And what it shows really, I think, is crucial to the, the success of where we're coming from is it's the first project financed wind floating wind farm in the world. So whereas to date, every project before them was either pay for off the balance sheet or heavily subsidized by public sector funding, this one we were able to secure project finance, which again showed the evolution from a, te a demonstration technology to a bankable and commercial technology. So far, Principal Power have had good production output and there have been no negative effects in terms of reliability from being in deep water. But on the positive side, they found that their floating wind farms have benefited from the greater wind speeds that accompany deeper waters, which is good news for performance. So it was kind of a win-win, and that's and to be able to go to the banks and go to developers and show them that, and then that that's that was been key to help us bring forward. Moving forward for Principal Power in the short term, before we see the projects with hundreds of megawatts that Kian just mentioned, means a 50 megawatt project at Kincardine in Scotland, which will use 9.5 megawatt turbines to take the scale up another notch. This is another feature we expect to see with floating wind farms of the future. As the arrays grow, so will the turbines, as developers seek to maximise power generating potential. 
The good news here is that wind turbines are well used to operating offshore and the industry's got decades of development in this area with longer and more reliable blades being key features of offshore turbines. These will be used in floating arrays too. This means for floating offshore, the more critical development has been into the foundations, the floaters that support the turbines. For Kian and Principal Power, their semi-submersible design actually came from the offshore oil and gas industry. So the, the, the wind float itself, it's a three-column semi-submersible, so again, akin to the oil and gas semi-submersibles. These are basically adapted floating rigs used for offshore drilling. What we have is an asymmetric one. We have the turbine mounted on one of the columns, so rather than being on centre mass, it's, it's, it's mounted on, on one of the columns. The three columns are braced together and, and, and are connected. In, in terms of dimensions, the three column approach and the technology we use enables us to have a relatively shallow draft. And that's a key issue when you think about these is how you commission them. In this case, the depth of the unit is from 10 metres, but it varies depending on the project. The way we achieve that, so the three columns are braced together and we've got three main elements that enable us to have our shallow draft and to achieve our station keeping. Station keeping or maintaining its horizontal position to support the turbine. They are what we would call our ballast system. So we have a sealed water ballast system which gives the mass to the structure. So where the turbine would be mounted on column one, there's a sealed water system in that which adds the, the ballast to that column. There's a different, differing amount of ballast in columns two and three to then balance that. So that's, that keeps the platform level. Secondly, there's the active balance system, which is basically a set of pumps. Now it's, it's active in that it can move water between the three columns. It's not active as in, it's not acting in a dynamic, it's not in, in a constant state of flux. But after sort of a high energy and sort of a high sea state, it's used to bring the platform back into trim. So if we had a, a sort of high swells in the Atlantic and the, it's, it's, it's moving, out of the horizontal, we can move water between the three columns to bring it back into, into an even keel. So on the wind float demonstrator project, the team found that the pumps were operating for around 45 minutes a day. So they're not, they're not kind of going all the time fighting the wind. It's really after high energy events, it's to bring it back into trim. Finally, water entrapment plates are also used for maintaining position. So each column would have a sort of a horizontal plate coming out from underneath it in different configurations depending on the site and the, and the platform. But what that uses is the viscous dampening of the water. So the, the, the mass of the water on these plates reacts to the thrust on the turbine, which in turn keeps the, the platform stable. So the three of those working as a system enables the platform to, to, to keep it station uh, and to stop it moving too much or, or tipping over. As well as the station keeping aspect of floating turbines, there's the need to position them out in deep water in the first place. And this is something that Fugro's Alistair Mackay knows all about, as Fugro helped position the Windflowed Atlantic project. When we got to the, the floaters in Portugal, they were being assembled. And then once they're assembled, we install our, our equipment onto it. Uh, and then we, tow, we assist in the tow out from, from field to the site much in the same way we would do with a typical semi-submersible drill rig move that we've got you know, 20, 30 years experience of moving. It's not new technology. We use DGNSS, so um, satellite navigation, to position the floaters, uh, the floating turbines, and then telemeter that back to the lay vessel, uh, much, in a, much in the same way we would do with a traditional semi-submersible rig move um, to an offshore oil and gas field. We telemeter the data back in real time so that the, the tow masters and the, the marine crew on the tow vessel 
can see the position and the heading of the floater relative to the, the, the main tow vessel itself. But just because the technology was tried and tested, it didn't mean that there weren't unique challenges for floating offshore wind. Actually, one of the challenges on the tow from uh, the quayside to the wind float site was the tow was actually quite long relative to some of the other floating projects that we've done. Uh, so we needed our survey system to stay up and running for uh, at least five days um, with no power. So we actually sort of challenged our workshop to think about outside the box. And one of the solutions they came up with is we used a small wind turbine generator on the large floater to, to, to power our survey systems, um, which was a bit of a, a strange twist in events. But, you know, it was nice to see that, yeah, we didn't need to, you know, switch the generator on. We could power the system and charge the system as we went. Even though the Windfloat Atlantic project used a semi-submersible foundation type, this isn't the only platform finding favour in the market at the moment. I think we, we identified 37 distinct platform types that were a medium to high TRL level. TRL, Technology Readiness Level. And this is Sam Strivens, a senior associate at the Carbon Trust. Carbon Trust is very active in, in the offshore wind sector. Um, we run a number of joint industry R&D programmes, so, so notably the, the Offshore Wind Accelerator, which is focused on, on fixed bottom offshore wind, but also the, the Floating Wind JIP, which is the world leading R&D forum for, for floating offshore wind. JIP stands for Joint Industry Project. So our involvement there is, is to reduce the cost and de-risk technology for, for floating offshore winds to the realisation of commercial scale floating offshore wind farms. Over the past five years, the Carbon Trust has run 23 projects to explore and develop technical capability in offshore wind, as well as providing regular market reports to update the industry on progress. For floating offshore wind, there's a lot to report, including the whittling down of foundation types from 37 to just a handful. Broadly, there at present are four main types of, of floating offshore wind platforms. So, so the semi-submersible, the spar buoy, the tension leg platform or TLP and the barge. The semi-submersible is used by Windfloat in Portugal. The spar buoy is the technology favoured by pioneering developer Equinor on its high wind project, which has moved from a demonstrator in Norway to a commercial 30 megawatt project in Scotland. The TLP platform is a buoyant platform anchored to the seabed using taut tendons that provide hydrodynamic stability. The most well-known barge system is the FloatGem platform from French firm Ideal. Although much technology has been adapted from offshore oil and gas, the performance criteria are very different. The idea with, the, with an oil and gas platform is you, you basically want to keep the, the platform as stationary as, as, as possible in, in any given sea condition. Conversely, with, with an offshore wind turbine, you will be directly applying forces to that platform. So both from the, from the loading of the, the turbine, but then with the meta-ocean conditions as well. So the wind wave um, and tide. So especially with, with the mooring system and the platform integrity, that's a, a kind of another layer of complexity that needs to be considered is those additional forces that are being applied to the platform. A particularly critical part of the technology puzzle for floating offshore wind is the need to convey power back to the mainland. Alistair Dutton has some very exciting ideas for how this could happen in the long term, which we're going to find out about later. But for now, there's a lot of research underway into which types of cables to use. Typically, for fixed offshore wind, inter-array cables are 33 or 66 kilovolts, whereas export cables are 220 or 230 kilovolts. 
So what's been used in the uh, floating offshore wind turbine installations to date, so so high wind and, and with Windfloat Atlantic, is the 66 kilovolt dynamic cables used for used for export as well as for, for linking the, the platforms together. So one of the challenges for going towards commercial scale floating offshore wind, so say 500 megawatts plus, will be a, a dynamic cable capable of transmitting up to say 230 kilovolts, um, which is uh, what we've been supporting through the Floating Wind JIP with our dynamic export cable competition. So we've supported the the development of a, a core for export voltage cables from, from five cable manufacturers around the world. The main difference between a static cable and a dynamic cable is the shielding that surrounds the transmission cables. Static cables traditionally use lead, but for dynamic cables, companies are investigating materials with better performance characteristics such as aluminium, steel or copper. Other important areas of innovation that the Carbon Trust is supporting concern operation and maintenance activities of new floating offshore wind farms. This could be vessels with cranes capable of reaching the 120 metre hub heights, or new software that can better monitor performance. So, so with oil and gas, you, you generally tend to have one one platform, so one asset with a very high revenue generation uh, potential. With, with floating offshore wind, conversely, you'd have up to say fifty units with, with with a revenue generation potential. So, any any kind of uh, monitoring inspection that will be applied to to, to one of those turbines will, will need to be applied in in some manner to, to to a number up to fifty units as well. So, so any any technical intervention that can reduce the requirement or to make that that process will will go a long way to reducing the cost of floating offshore wind. So what the industry needs is technical innovations that can help bring down costs. Thinking about oil and gas structures, uh, they tend to be very large and there are plenty of floating structures that that are out there. And what we found is that the the mooring lines that, that fix them, fix these floating structures to the seabed, uh, they do encounter problems, and there have been cases where these mooring lines have have failed; that they've they've basically snapped, and uh, that that's a a big concern. Stuart Kilborn works in the structural instrumentation division of Fugro. Traditionally, in the oil and gas industry, where he spent considerable time instrumenting and monitoring structures, mooring lines will be periodically inspected using remotely operated vehicles. But using ROVs could become uneconomic when it comes to the large arrays of floating wind turbines planned for the future. When we move to a wind farm, a floating wind farm, uh, each structure might have three mooring lines you know, in each direction. It's like a three-legged stool. But there could easily be a hundred floating wind turbines. Uh, so that there are going to be 300 mooring lines. So Stuart, along with colleagues and a team from the University of Strathclyde, are investigating a new approach thanks to funding from the Carbon Trust. So this, this project came from an idea that we had to monitor the mooring lines of uh, floating oil and gas structures. But the, the Carbon Trust put out a competition entry to come up with new technologies to, to help overcome the problems in, in floating wind. We looked at it and saw that it was immediately applicable, ideal, in fact. What we do is we measure the position of the the floating structure as it drifts backwards and forwards with different currents and different waves and different wind conditions. And we also measure how it bobs up and down in the water and it pitches and rolls and, and heaves just like a boat does. 
uh, in response to the wave conditions. And by making these measurements of the position and the motion of the floating structure, we can then use a, a model, a, you know, a physical model, you know, a computer simulation model of, of that floating structure and the mooring lines and knowing where all the anchors are on the seabed, we can take all that information and we can then calculate what the tension is in each of the mooring line and how different waves give you cycles of tension, so pulling it taut and letting it slack. And it's this response of the mooring lines to the cyclical loading that's really important. So we can then begin to predict how long it would take for a, these cycles to produce what's called a fatigue crack. It's a, a microscopic crack in the material, uh, but over time and over repetitive cycles, it would then begin to grow and they would link together until they, they form an actual, what you might call a, a visible crack that would then propagate and grow. Of course, the power of this technology is that it would mean there wouldn't be any cracks because they'd be predicted and prevented. Part of what we want to do is to predict how long and how far into the life of the structure that process will become a problem and we also predict where it will happen so that we can then target any inspection with a, a remote control submarine or divers we can then target that at the locations that are most likely to fail and this is where the university of strathclyde comes in now we've partnered with the university of strathclyde their, their naval architect and Ocean and Marine Engineering Department to develop the, the fatigue modelling of how this, the tensions in the, the mooring lines become cracks. And they've got a, a special world-class state-of-the-art department that do peridynamic modelling, that, that model how cracks form and how they grow in, in, in materials and structures. So these sensors and the software will tell the wind farm operator not only what the loading conditions are at any time, but what the effect of those will be on the mooring lines, and specifically where and when any fatigue cracking could occur. They also have the advantage of providing real-time information on condition via the fibre optic cables that run back to shore along with the export cables. And so by continuously, 24-7, 365 days a year, Throughout the, the life of the structure, we're, we're looking to monitor how these structures move, where they are exactly in position and whether they've, they've drifted off um, unexpectedly. Uh, and that would be kind of a sign that there was a problem with the mooring system, that you know, the anchor had moved or, or, a, or a, something had snagged on the mooring line. The team used data from Scotland's High Wind project to create the first system and the first stage of the project will be completed in early 2021. Our goal is that when more demonstration projects, which would be typically about three floating units, are put out into the Atlantic Ocean or the North Sea or whatever around the world, that we would be able to get measure the position and the motion and, and demonstrate how these structures perform uh, in response to waves and then use that to design and implement monitoring systems for each and every floating unit in an entire wind farm that, that, will, that will follow.
But how many floating wind farms are there going to be? Well, Boris Johnson set out a gigawatt for the UK by 2030. What about the rest of the world? Alistair Dutton from GWEC has been counting. There are many predictions for what floating offshore wind will bring. And, you know, the industry breaks into the optimists and the pessimists. So be prepared for a range of numbers. The GWEC uh, outlooks takes us to six and a half gigawatts by 2030. I have seen a developer projection that's double that and I've seen some more conservative figures. One of the reasons that the industry is so excited about floating offshore wind is the vast amount of territory that floating platforms open up. To date, fixed offshore wind has been built in waters of 40 metre depth or shallower because of the constraints of construction, such as the needing to drill into the seabed. Floating wind opens deeper waters all over the world, from northern France, the west coast of the US and Japan. But Great Britain is the first country to set a hard target. In terms of water depths, floating offshore wind is definitely most compatible with the Celtic Sea and some of the Scottish waters. If you look at the Scottish Marine Plan, there are certain zones that on water depth alone are only compatible with floating offshore wind. Julia Roop is Fugro's Global Offshore Wind Business Development Manager and also co-chair of the newly formed Floating Offshore Wind Group for industry organisation Deep Wind. Deep Wind was formed as part of the delivery programme for the UK's offshore wind sector deal announced in March of 2019. And the main purpose of the group is to make sure that Scotland's energy supply chain companies benefit from the new floating offshore wind projects in Scotland and the wider UK. The political certainty that the UK has is a brilliant catalyst for growth. We've got the political backing, the technology and the experience to make floating offshore wind succeed and it's an exciting time for the industry. But that doesn't mean there aren't challenges and the biggest is getting to the scale of delivery that brings down costs and meets the need for cleaner, greener power. Just as floating wind is ramping up, so are the fixed arrays, meaning that the entire offshore wind industry is growing fast. Some of the biggest challenges that could come in the supply chain are, are linked to the assembly side of things and the marshalling ports for the turbines. So you need quite deep water depending on the types of substructure that you're going to be using and we have very limited capacity in terms of deep water ports in the UK so you need a lot of onshore space and they may be competing for space with the fixed foundation turbine structures as well. This is one of the reasons that when Boris Johnson made his offshore wind announcements he also committed 160 million to port side development specifically targeted at Scotland, Teesside, Humberside and Wales. But Julia says what we need is a plan. As a whole, there needs to be a strategic and coordinated plan of how we develop our port infrastructure to accommodate the needs of the offshore wind industry to make sure that we use all our ports and play to their advantages and maximise what they can do to support the offshore wind industry. And we need to break this down into the various phases of the offshore wind development to make sure that they're suitable at each stage. So we go from the construction stage right through to the operations and maintenance. We also need to learn from experience in offshore oil and gas, where deep water operations have been carried out for decades. In the offshore industry, really deep water is anything over a thousand metres. Um, it, it varies, but, but basically over a thousand metres, we would classify anything less than that as just normal, if you like. It, it's not classed as deep water. And, and, and I think that's a, 
that, that's a realisation that the both industries have to, to acknowledge when, when talking about it. But it's also important for supply chain and all the, the various providers as part of it to understand the big difference in terminology. It's the same thing, deep water, but it means very, very different things between wind uh, and, and oil and gas. The good news is that technology transfer is happening naturally as we transition to low-carbon forms of power generation, from the semi-submersible rigs becoming floating wind platforms to positioning technology and updating instrumentation for improved monitoring and maintenance. It's important that the floating wind industry doesn't look to then reinvent the wheel of what's already been learned over 30, 40 years from the oil and gas industry. There's a huge amount of lessons learned. That, that can go in to ensure that floating wind continues at the pace that it's required to do to furnish the energy transition, but do it in a, in a sustainable and sensible manner, ultimately. Understanding that the technology exists and is adaptable is one of the reasons that developers are getting excited about floating offshore wind. Early projects are delivering fantastic results and perhaps most importantly, political support's growing. These factors are changing the game for the industry. Looking to the future, one of the most exciting things about all of this, and we promised we would get to this, is that floating offshore wind could create opportunities for another avenue of clean energy. Offshore wind floating is exciting because it takes us to new geographies and even stronger winds. And beyond that, offshore wind to hydrogen unshackles us from power demands and lets us go to the very best offshore wind, the mother load, where engineering really matters. Green hydrogen, generated from electrolyzers sitting alongside floating wind turbines. We explored hydrogen as a clean energy vector in episode 24, Hydrogen Potential. And for the, uh, the work with World Bank, it makes island states all of a sudden an opportunity that they haven't been thinking through because their power demands are, say, a few hundred megawatts. Well, if their wind resource is multiple gigawatts, this could be a new income stream for them. This would really change the shape of the market. And if the energy is being stored and moved by ship, there's no need for a grid connection. My vision is that we'll move to places where the wind is really spectacular, 14, 15 metres a second, generate the hydrogen there, and infrequently that will be using floating foundations, and take the hydrogen to, to market on ships like LNG ships. So this market will turn upside down. Instead of finding places with power demand, we'll be going to just the very best wind in the world. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. Produced by Bernadette Ballantyne. Edited by Alex Conacher. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Our executive floating producer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner Fugro, the Global Wind Energy Council, Principal Power and the Carbon Trust. Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps, LinkedIn, Twitter and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. Music